All right, let's open up our Bibles, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 16. If you're visiting, we are currently working our way through the book of 2 Samuel. So we are at chapter 16 this morning. Uh, As we've been doing, the narratives tend to be a little bit longer. We're going to read it as we work our way through it, instead of reading it up front like we do uh, often uh, elsewhere in Scripture. So first, I want to pray, ask for God's blessing our time. So let's pray. Let's go before his throne of grace. Uh, God, we come before you right now, and sometimes as we read these passages, it seems so uh, far away in history and in time, and, and, and Lord, it, at times it even feels like, how relevant is this for us in 2023? So we pray, God, that you would bridge that gap, that you're the same God that is in this chapter as the same God who's in our life right now that you are at work even in the midst of our enemies and our foes. Uh, We pray that you would help us to see uh, you in this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's wise to know your opposition. So we are a week away from Super Bowl Sunday, and I guarantee both the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs, they have a very firm grasp of their opposition. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to translate on the football field. It doesn't necessarily mean one team is going to be so much better than the other. We'll we'll see what happens a week from today. But the point is, it's vital to know your opponent. I guarantee they've spent a ton of time watching film and watching videos and analyzing the players and tendencies and, and play calling and all of that stuff. So then when they finally go against their opponent, they're ready. That's the point. It's the hope to overcome opposition is to know that opposition of what they're like and what they'll do when they go against you. And I think that's vitally true, probably even more so in the spiritual realm. I think we're reminded time and again as we go through 2 Samuel that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are going to encounter many foes who oppose God's work in and through our lives. So be on the lookout, be alert. What's happening to David in this chapter is not unique to David. It's something that we can and will expect in our life, that we will not proceed forward without resistance, but take heart. God is the victor over all of our foes. So that's what we're going to consider today, uh, the need for you and I to know the opposition. And we're going to look at three specific foes in the passage today. Uh, we're going to begin by phone number one, Zeba. This second time we've seen Zeba, we're going to do a little refresher course of our first time of Zeba. But you can really kind of characterize Zeba. He's the manipulator. Zeba is only caring about one person, and it's me, myself, and I. He's all about his own preservation. So we're going to look at Zeba and how David engages with him. Our second foe, uh, foe is Shimei. Shimei, he is the accuser. He's the hater. He does not like David. He makes it very clear to everybody. And we're going to see how David responds to him. And then lastly, we're going to see foe number three, Ahithophel. And he's the betrayer. He's the one in this who used to walk alongside of David. He was the one who used to be the counsel to David. He, he was one uh, who truly ends up being a traitor to David. 
in our passage today. And I think we can all expect those kind of foes in our own life, manipulators, haters, and betrayers. Well, let's begin. Let's pick up at verse 1 with Zeba. Uh, we, we need to realize when we see all these foes, it's really the overflow of what we saw last week when we looked at David's response to Absalom betraying him and the conspiracy. Remember Psalm 3. That is the psalm historically of David for this context. And there's a verse in Psalm 3 that I think characterizes what we're seeing here. He says, many are my foes, many are rising against me. And if you don't believe me, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 16. All right, so let's read verses 1 to 4. When David had passed when David had passed the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who, uh, who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's servant, or master's son? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage, let me forever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. We need a brief recap of the Mephibosheth story. Starts in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. What happened was Saul and Jonathan early on in 2 Samuel, if you recall, they were killed in battle. They were killed. Word comes to the person who is watching over Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. Well, if grandpa's killed, dad is killed, who would be next in line for the throne? Mephibosheth. So he would be a likely target for an opposition to go and kill. So, so they, they take Mephibosheth, uh, the person who's caring for him, runs off, and she drops him. He falls, he gets crippled. So for that point forward, his life is drastically different. Well, chapter 9, if you recall, things are going well for David at this point in his life in chapter 9, and he remembers a promise he made to his best friend, Jonathan, that he would show hesed love, right? Covenant faithfulness to him for all of his days. And he promised that, hey, if, if there's anybody left in your line, I'm not gonna kill him off like would have been the normal pattern for a king from a previous regime still being around, kill off everybody so there's no uh, potential uh, people who would take over the throne. Well, he remembers that promise. So he says, hey, is there anybody still around from the, the line of Saul, from Jonathan? And he finds out that Jonathan had a son, Mephibosheth, that was still around. But he's crippled. And what David ends up doing is he has him come. He ends up basically bringing him on like a child, like his own son. He's allowed to eat at the king's table every day. So he is taken care of. But then the other thing he does, when he found out about this, he met a guy named Ziba. And we start immediately questioning the caliber of a man that Ziba is. Because if you recall, Ziba was a servant of Saul. And he happened to have 15 sons and 20 servants of his own. That's a pretty good servant's life. 
And what we start seeing happen with Ziba is once Mephibosheth was crippled and Saul was defeated, he kind of took everything, took even Mephibosheth's inheritance and kind of stashed Mephibosheth away. And he kind of was living like he was the king's son rather than that. Well, David was on to him. David said, okay, here's the deal, uh, Ziba. Everything that you have, guess what? It is now Mephibosheth and you get to serve him. All right? So that's your life. So that's how it's been since chapter 9. Ziba now sees David is leaving. He's fleeing. His son is going for the throne and he is opportunistic. He's like, here's what I can do now. I can get back my stuff. So he goes and he, he, he shares a lie to David. And it's kind of a ridiculous one. And I think you and I, we've all encountered ridiculous lies before. I'll never forget that day I opened up my email and I inherited $15 million from a prince in Nigeria. I've never been to Nigeria, so it was a little bit of a surprise to me that this prince, but then I'm like, we are online. Maybe he's listened to my sermons. Whatever the case is, I'm joking. I did not at any point believe that some random person was leaving me $15 million. It might have been in euros. I don't know. It was, it was something different in the midst of it. It's like, a, I mean, what do we call those people? They're scam artists. We immediately judge any of us if we start to buy it. Because we all have that family member, hey, I think we want some money. Like, no, you didn't. You would know if you want some money because the money would be here. That's the ridiculous nature to what Ziba says here. First of all, the fact that David is asking where Mephibosheth is is kind of a ridiculous question. Why? Because he's crippled. He can't get anywhere. If he gets somewhere, he would need to have Ziba bring him. So maybe he's thinking, oh, you know, Ziba, why didn't you bring Mephibosheth? And if you remember, too, with Mephibosheth's story, he was, there was a humble disposition about him. He even referred to himself as like a dog. Like, I, 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 it's, I, I can't sit at the king's table. Like, this, is, this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. So that's the caliber of Mephibosheth, caliber of Zima, and then Ziba. And then listen to the, the, the spin that he, he brings. He says, here's what he's saying. He said, he's staying back at Jerusalem because today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. What are the chances that that was Absalom's endgame? What we know of Absalom so far, does that sound like Absalom? That his endgame, his goal in all of this uprising against his dad is we need to give the throne back to the house of Saul. Does that sound like Absalom? Now, mind you, Mephibosheth would have known Absalom because you know what? Every single day he ate at the king's table. And I'm arguing, in my opinion, now this is partial speculation, Who's probably one of the most intimidating people to sit at that table with? Absalom. Mephibosheth is a cripple of the house of Saul, and Absalom is the best person, best looking person in the world. I mean, the Bible, he says, like, he's perfect. If there was perfect in appearance, kind of intimidating. And yet, he's saying, yeah, that, that was what Mephibosheth would think. You know what? Absalom's going to make me king. Does that even sound like it? No. And yet, that's what he says. And what is David's response? Okay. All that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. Talk about an overreaction on David's part. 
could David have found out? Remember last week we learned, or two weeks ago, he's got spies in the midst. Would have been that difficult to, to inquire and say, hey, has Mephibosheth betrayed me? He doesn't do any response. He, he, he just simply reacts. He gives everything to Mephibosheth. And I would argue in this chapter, this is the worst of David. This is a disaster. Like, what are you doing, David? How are you so easily tricked by this scam artist? He has no discernment. And I think that's a danger for you and I. We encounter foolishness and deceit and lies all around, fake news everywhere. And I think way too often we as Christians buy it hook, line, and sinker. Way too often we're enticed and wounded. And not only do we believe it, we overreact as a response to it. How many times have you read something on, online, Facebook or Twitter, and regardless of what the website was, you read it, it is law, it happened, it's real, and the next thing you know, you're posting it, and you're saying, I can't believe they did that, or I can't believe, and then you end up finding out after the fact that it wasn't actually accurate. Friends, we need to be, in the words of 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have come out into the world. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't doubt some people. It doesn't mean we should doubt everyone. But stop being so naive, brothers and sisters. Be discerning. Don't overreact. There's a reason that the Bible says be slow to anger, to slow to speak. Why are you discerning today? Are you too quick to trust? Do you overreact time and again? Because we see the foolishness of David, but we also see, and here's kind of the silver lining beauty of it, we see the faithfulness of God. Notice what God does in spite of the fact that Ziba is scamming David. He provides for him through a wicked man Does God ever do that in the Bible? Like all the time. Think of the life of Joseph. Joseph's betrayed by his brothers. In the midst of all of it, he ends up in slavery. He ends up in Egypt. But then notice what Genesis 50, 20 is. As Joseph looks back, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In this passage, Ziba could care less about providing for David. He wants to provide for himself, and yet God is going to provide through him for David. That God does that. He uses people in that regard. God is providing. And I think also in this little section, I think this is an encouragement to David of what awaits him. You think David's a little depressed? When we saw him last week, he's crying, he's weeping, he's saying goodbye. His own son wants the throne and his own son wants him dead. And God right here provides for him in a very physical way. I think it's God telling David, I've got this. I'm going to care for you. You need not worry. Well, can you testify to that in your own life? That God has provided for you in unlikely ways. We had our annual church member meeting uh, for those that were unable to come. And one of the things we did in the very beginning was just start off looking back at God's faithfulness. And I'm amazed every year, every month, to see how God provides for this church. He provides people. He provides 
financially just provides again and again and again. And God does it even sometimes through very unlikely means. So we see foe number one, David's foolishness, uh, God's faithfulness. It, like I said, it is not the best of David. Well, let's go on to Shimei. Uh, foe number two, uh, as we're going to see, he is a man of the family of the house of Saul. So he's a descendant of David's most arch enemy, uh, Saul. Not happy to see David, to say the least. Read verse five with me. When King David came to Baruchim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Jerah. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you son of Zeruah? If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to his all servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him it to do it. And maybe that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. Notice David's humility. I would say previous part, some of the worst of David. This section, some of the best of David. Notice Shimei's accusation. It's of partial truth. One aspect of the partial truth is he is blaming the blood of the house of Saul on David's hand. Is that true? How many times did David go above and beyond the call of duty? How many times did he go out of the way to not shed blood of the house of Saul? Again and again and again. He had him in a cave, he could have killed him. He was in his camp, he could have killed him. David refused because he knew that was the Lord's anointing. So notice David in his humility, he doesn't quickly defend himself. I mean, we live in a culture that you defend yourself at all costs. Look at celebrities. The moment somebody says something that they would argue is false and or doesn't make them good, how many of these celebrities end up in the courts where they sue for libel and slander? Where they're quick to say, well, that, that's not true. I, I didn't say that. I don't know that person. I didn't do that. Because they're so worried about their reputation that they cannot sit by idly and just let it go. But look at David here. Does he get his attorney out? Does he get his PR firm together and say, hey, we, we need to defend ourselves? You see, because in David's humility, even though it's a partial truth, there's a whole lot of truth to what Shimei says. Because he's not guilty of the blood of the house of Saul, but is he, is he guilty of blood? Everybody nod your head, yeah. 
Is he a murderer? Yeah. You remember that guy, Uriah? You remember Bathsheba's husband that he had killed to cover up his tracks that he got his, his, that person's wife's pregnant? Yeah, that's David. And David realized that. He noticed it. He was aware that maybe this is God cursing me for my sin. Maybe this is God in his judgment against me. And he responds appropriately. Matthew 5.11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. David gets it. If this is God cursing me, then hey, it's deserved. And if it's not, I'm going to leave it in God's hands. I need not worry. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. I, I love this quote because I know for myself, and I, I know I'm filled in this room, I know I at least have some kindred spirits. I like to defend myself if you speak poorly of me. It's just an inner, inner defense attorney. I'm ready to go. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him. Why, Charles? For you are worse than he thinks you are. Think of that. If any man speaks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you're worse than you think you are. Let's be vulnerable with one another. All the times that people gossip and slander and talk bad and speak poorly of you, if we're really being vulnerable and candid with one another, they don't know half of it. Because if we're honest with each other and we're behind closed doors, we're kind of messes. We can be jerks. We can be rude, we can be nasty, we can be self-absorbed. And notice David in this humility. That's why I said this is some of the best to David. This is where we see David, a man after God's own heart, in this part. Well, do you have that kind of humility? Are you quick to defend? But it's not only his humility. The thing I find amazing in this passage is David's patience. His patience. I remember it was an interview a long time ago. Uh, and in the interview, the guy's name was Chris, who was being interviewed. He had the same last name of a very famous woman's tennis player. And her name was Chrissy. Well, in the interview, the guy, because he was, he, was, he was trying to egg him on, he consistently kept calling him Chrissy. He's like, oh, okay, Chrissy. And, and he knew what he was doing. The person being interviewed knew what he was doing, and you could tell like a switch happened. He got to a point where he's like, stop calling me Chrissy. And this is a big guy. This is a much bigger guy than the interviewer. And he's a professional athlete on top of it all. And he, and he told him, he, he gave him a warning. He said, you do it one more time, and I will be stopping you from doing it. And sure enough, this little arrogant interviewer, he said, no problem, Chrissy table gets flipped. He jumps and lunges on the guy. All the people who are video and stuff have to run to pull this professional athlete off this little interviewer. It's kind of that. That's kind of what's going on in this chapter. Do you see it? It's almost comical. So there's this guy. They're walking. He's cursing. He's slandering. He's loud. He, he, he didn't hear the sticks and stones may break my bones with words. He's trying both. He's throwing rocks at him. He's doing that. And David is just chill. David is the dog that the kids are just tormenting. And you can tell the dog would really like to bite the kids. But he doesn't. 
And David, he just, he just keeps going. But David's with somebody who's not as patient as David. Did you see that with Abishah? Listen to what Abishah said. Abishah looks at him. He's like, first of all, who is this dude? How does he think he can talk to my Lord like this? I've got a solution. Let me go cut his head off. Because I've learned if you don't have a head, you can't curse and you can't throw rocks. So win-win for everybody, David. Let me go cut the head off. You remember when you cut Goliath's head off? I would like to reenact that right now with this dude who's throwing rocks. And David says, don't. Because he's patient. He understands that if this is God, that's good. If not, God will give me blessing down the road. I will not avenge. 1 Peter 3.9, he says, do not repeat evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you are called so that you might inherit a, a blessing. You understand that? Let God repay. No vengeance. Now, vengeance, I'm not going to, I don't want to share too much down the road. Shimei will get his own. He will, he will suffer eventually. He will eventually. But notice David, who is he resembling a lot in this passage? Name, say his name. Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 7, he was afflicted, yet not he opened his mouth. So let's, let's, let's look at our own lives. How patient are you with others? And I'm not talking parents just with your kids. Wives, your amazing patience of your husband. But how patient are you with people? As followers of Jesus Christ, man, we should be the example of what it looks like to be long-suffering, to be patient, to endure the foolishness of others. All right, so we're at foe number three. We've looked at David, or we've looked at Ziba, David's foolishness, God's faithfulness, not the best of David. We see Shimei, though. We see David's humility and patience, and he really is some of the best of David. But now we get to Hithophel. There's really, this is kind of actually a tag team foes. We got Ahithophel and we've got Absalom, David's son. Let's pick up at verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with them. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go out with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom shall I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Hithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines when he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with him will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Hithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God, so was all the counsel of Hithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. Notice the disloyalty. We see it on two fronts. We see it, first of all, from uh, Absalom, his son, 
continued disloyalty, but also we see it from Ahithophel, his counsel. He was the word of God to people at that time. He was, he was the counsel, and he had been that for David, and now he easily transitions to Absalom. Now, in the midst of all of this, we see a bright spot. Who's the bright spot? Hushai, the spy. He gets one by Absalom. Notice in Absalom's pride, he doesn't get what Hushai is doing. Notice he says, hey, you're my dad's friend, and you're coming to me. Like, why would you be so not loyal? And he keeps saying in very generic terms, long live the king who God has chosen. Does that mean he's saying he now has transferred his allegiance from David to Absalom? No, it's, I think he's talking in a very generic, generic sense. He's still thinking of David. Because who is the real king right now? It's still David. Long live the king. And yet, Absalom, because he's so prideful, so arrogant, ends up getting tricked. Now, one thing with Ahithophel, and this is speculation, we can't guarantee it for sure. But if you look later in 2 Samuel and even in Chronicles, there's a name connection that he might be somebody actually related to somebody very important. Ahithophel might be Bathsheba's grandfather. Now, it gives a whole new light in his betrayal, wouldn't it? Would it be possible that a grandpa would be pretty mad at what David's done with his granddaughter? We don't know that for sure, but we do know he is disloyal and he gives very intentional counsel. God warned this was going to happen, though. 2 Samuel 12, 8. He says, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. So he, he talked, we, we see a pattern happening that when a king took over, he tended to inherit not only the, the palace and all that stuff, he ended up inheriting the wives. So there, there, there's clearly something going on with Ahithophel's council. And it's, he's crossing the line of no return. What's the line of no return? It's when you say or do something that you cannot take back. It's the mirror that once it cracks and shatters and falls into a million pieces, you aren't fixing it. It can't be done. Think of it as a criminal. I mean, how many times, let's say you're a bank robber, you case it, you do all these things. The point that you give that note to the bank and say, give me the money, I have a gun, that is the point of no return. That's the point that the police are not going to say, were you serious? No, I was just joking. Like, oh, okay, go on home. No, you're going to be tried for a crime at that point. And what David ends up, not David, what Absalom ends up doing, it is the point of no return in what he does by laying with the concubines. You know what he's saying? He's marking his territory. He's saying, this is my throne. There will be no reconciliation with my dad. I will be the king. This is Judas betraying Jesus. This is opposing God. It's opposing God's choice. Why are you prepared for that kind of betrayal as a follower of Jesus? Are you ready for that? Even with your closest I mean, that's a real possibility in this world because you're either for Christ or against. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, even though we love saying that all the time. I came to bring a sword. I came to separate a mother from a daughter, a father from a son. And we see it firsthand in here. 
the disloyalty. But not only in the disloyalty, we need to see something. And that is that this is the discipline of God. This is the discipline of God. 2 Samuel 12, 11, I will take your wives before your eyes and I will give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it in secretly, what he did with Bathsheba. But I'm gonna do this before all Israel and before the son. Friends, this is God's discipline. This is God's judgment on David for his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. You know what this is? It's God keeping promises. We love that God is a promise keeper, amen? We love it. We love to claim his promises, but we tend to trend in the promise keeping celebration with positive promises. He will never leave me nor forsake me. That, like all of those promises, those are great promises. Let's, let's cling tight to them. But what about the promises when you will reap what you sow? If you do this, there will be consequences, and that's what is happening here. We see God's judgment upon him. It's a consequence of sin. I mean, it's a bad day. Think about it for David. His son wants him dead. He's losing the throne that God had given him. He's leaving the promised land. He's leaving the Ark of the Covenant behind. And God has told him, I'm going to judge you. David has no guarantee apart from the fact that there will be one who sits on the throne from your line after you. That was his hope to cling to. And he did not know completely what that meant practically, how it was going to transpire. And yet, he embraced the Lord's discipline. Who are you? Are you open to the discipline of God? Or are you, like most children, very resistant? I mean, I joke about it, but as a, as a parent, I've had very few kids that say, man, I'm really glad you discipline us. You know what? I wish you would take stuff more away from me. Like, here's my video games. Take these privileges away. It's just it's so good. I learned so much from that. No, they, they're like, this is unfair. Can it be over? I've learned enough. Let's move on to the next discipline. And I think that's our, our tendency. And we hate discipline. We hate when God makes life a little harder. But guess what? God cares about your holiness. He cares about your future well-being. He cares about your maturity far more than your simple happiness and satisfaction. And David, this is good for David. David is really messed up in 2 Samuel, but this is good for him. I think it's not uncommon to turn on the news and hear of an escaped criminal in a particular area that uh, the person is dangerous, be on the lookout. I don't know about you, but when that happens and I know they're in my area, doors are all locked, windows are locked. I make sure that I'm mindful of any noises, even more scared if it's not a person but an animal. I remember one time, uh, there was like some like wild animal loose and I'm like, yeah, I don't want to see that. It, it, it puts you on caution. It, it awakens you. You're alert. I think when we look at this chapter and we see all these foes against David, I think it is a reminder to you and I, danger lurks around us. 
Peter warned us. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Because he's out there roaming. He's got those that work for him. So there's going to be opposition. There's going to be foes. There's going to be obstacles. There's going to be resistance. As followers of Christ, be prepared to face the opposition to God's work. We will not proceed with without resistance. I think some of us, we, our heads are in the clouds. I think part of what's going on in our culture right now is so troubling because we forgot we we're in a war. We, 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 we've had so many freedoms and, and privileges in our country that now, when some of them are starting to be threatened, when now, when we start seeing a much more vocal pushback against Christianity, we're like, I don't know what to do. Friends, our brothers and sisters around the world, that's how they've always lived. That's what they've always dealt with. If anything, they probably have looked at us with a little envy, a little jealousy of how smooth the ride has been for the American Christian. And I think as we move on in the future, and it's going to be a lot more of a bumpy ride, we need to be alert We need to be aware. We're going to have the manipulators. We're going to have the haters. We're going to have the betrayers. Be prepared. And it might even come from your own family. But I don't want to leave on that note because there's good news. That we don't face this enemy alone. We have Christ, Romans 8, 28. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So be on the lookout. But don't be afraid. God is the victor. We will overcome. Salvation belongs to our God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and we acknowledge that we don't like opposition. It's frustrating. It's burdensome. And often it is quite scary. But I pray, God, for each of us that we would be bold, that we might be courageous as we live out in this world. At the end of the day, help us to cling to the hope and the promise that we are more than conquerors through you, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we cling to and we pray in his precious name. Amen. Let's respond through song.